0: Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite, a Project Moon Hut podcast series. For those of you who don't know, Project Moon Hut, as of today, is a five-year project where we've been working with teams around the world, including NASA in um, NASA Ames some a team there. And we're focusing on developing self-sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, to change how we live on Earth, or within mirth, as we call it, Moon and Earth, for all species. Today we have a great guest on the line, John Strickland. How are you, John? Fine. You're fine, (laughs) that's good. I hope you're you're much better than fine today when we go through the program. The, The title that John and I have come up with for this program is The Logic Behind the Moon Power Satellites, Power Satellites, and Solving Climate Change. Now, you've heard me mention a few times the National uh, Space Society. John is a, on the board of directors of the National Space Society. He's been an advocate for the Space Frontier Foundation. And as you told me just a few minutes ago, he has been interested in space since he's been 10 years old. So I guess there's a reference point we have to put here, John. How old are you?
1: I am 76.
0: Seventy-six. So that's quite a few years ago. So, John, you have a few bullet points for us. What are they?
1: Okay. The first one is global warming from a deep time perspective.
0: From deep time. Wow. Deep time perspective. Okay. Next.
1: Okay. Alternate energy on the ground and its problems.
0: Alternate energy on ground and its problems. Next.
1: Alternate energy in space and its promise.
0: Ah. Energy in space and its promise. Okay. Next.
1: New Space opens the door to space. Next, Moon to the rescue.
0: <laughs> Love the moon. Okay, and I th- next,
1: R- the rationale for a lunar polar mining base. For
0: a lunar polar mining base and you had told me you have six so i'm assuming that's That's it it. all right so i'm I this this first one global warming from a, a deep deep time perspective hit me i'm 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 smiling i'm ready to hear what you've got to say about this
1: okay so you know that deep time simply means geological time millions and millions of years of time right
0: well now i do so thank you
1: so, uh, for question number one, what is an ice age?
0: What is the ice age?
1: And you describe what the ice age that people conceive of when they hear the word ice age is.
0: Okay, so I'm going, to, I'm going to screw this up royally because there's definitely an answer that I don't know, even though I've studied some of these things in university. Uh, the ice age is a period in time in which... For a multitude of reasons, the atmosphere had changed, The possibly the rotation of the or the slowing of the earth or the axis of uh, one of those has caused the earth to cool or first added humidity into the air and then cooled and created ice that went all the way down as far as, for example, in the States to the middle of the country. And I know I screwed that up really bad.
1: Well, you anyway. got part of it right. So, okay. first of all, we're 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 are living in a the warm cycle of the current ice age, which it, with the cycle lasts a hundred thousand years, of which the warm cycle lasts about twelve to fifteen thousand years maximum. So you got about ninety thousand years of cold cycle, but that's just one of the current cycles of the current ice eon, and I could ask. You want an ice eon, yeah, but since I made that term up to, to fill a gap in terminology, I'll, let me I, describe it.
0: Then I would not get it right, an so I appreciate the help. simply
1: a period of time, say longer than a million years. It's To humans, that's eons of time, but okay. um, yep. just so we have some idea. So what we, most people don't understand that we're still living in the place to Pleistocene geological period, and... There have been a couple dozen of these 100,000 year and earlier about 55,000 year cold and warm ice age cycles since the start of the Pleistocene about 3 million years ago. But the big issue, of course, is what causes an ice age. Now, the, the, the normal uh, axial rotation of the Earth uh, creates things called Milanovic cycles, which match... The hundred thousand year uh, current ice age warm, cold, and warm cycles. Okay. But the bigger the bigger period is the Ice eon itself. During most of ice Earth's history of at least a half billion years, five hundred million years since the end of the Precambrian, we have been uh, about three quarters of the time, roughly, in a period with no ice eons at all, where the Ocean is about 250 feet higher than it is now. No continental glaciers anywhere on Earth. You'd have mountain glaciers, certainly. But you'd have these shallow seas uh, that would cover uh, uh, many of the lower, low-lying parts of continents. And where the dinosaur relatives love to to play and and get food in these shallow seas like plesiosaurs and mosasaurs and so forth. So... Um, the question is, what causes the ice aeons themselves? Well, you know about plate tectonics, how the Earth's uh, core drives the, the convection currents in the Earth's mantle, which is made out of yeah. like very hot, silly putty, which drives the continents like the scum on, on, a, on a boiling pot of, of uh, a stew or soup and mo- makes them move around. It moves around to a very clear pattern, but in terms of where the Earth's poles are, it's sort of like a random pattern. So, essentially, about one quarter of the time, a pole of the Earth is covered uh, or is, it has, has a continental mass over it because there's roughly one quarter of the surface's continental mass, a little bit more than that, and about three quarters of it, a little bit less, is water. So on an average period, you've got about 25% chance that that a pole be covered by uh, land, and three quarters yeah. of a 3 quarters, 75% chance it'll be covered by water. Now, imagine you you look at the current situation where you have the South Pole right in the middle of Antarctica, and of course glaciers conform on the land. And the ocean can't sweep, sweep, sweep the ice away because it's on solid ground, even though that ground is, is you know, extremely depressed by the weight of the ice. The other, the other one is the Arctic Ocean, which is hemmed in out by all the continents around it. So the ice pack there can't be easy, easily swept away by ocean currents either. So you have actually, although you have an ocean over the North Pole, it's as if, You had a continental mass there because the ice can form around around the pole and it can't be swept away. But imagine if you had a pole, as you often do, say in the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean, what would happen?
0: If it was in the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific, or Pacific Ocean, If oh. you had
1: a, if you had a North or South Pole, and and the ice tried, the water got real cold, and the and the, and it, and it tried to form pack it would, ice. Wouldn't it wouldn't
0: it change the ro- Wouldn't it change the rotation of the Earth because nope. the nope. no no
1: what would happen is the ocean currents would continuously sweep away the cold water and ice. The cold water would sink to the bottom, create a completely yep. different. Pattern yeah, the ocean- ocean- oceanic
0: movement, yeah, the yeah. whole pathway would be different.
1: So you, so we are actually living right now in a very rare period of Earth's history, only about one-tenth of Earth's history, how are we living in an era of two ice eons? Effectively, an ice eon affects one hemisphere at a time, but we're living in this period for at least the last three million years called the Pleistocene, where we've got two of them, and the other one started about 30 million years ago when Antarctica started to move over the South Pole and started to form its ice cap. So, if, you know, they're, they don't, they're not synchronized at all. It's sort of random. So this is really important to understand that we're not only living in this very rare period of a double ice but, and that we will be in that period for many millions of years to come, because the continents don't move very rapidly. They move a few inches a year. So this is...
0: This is an aside question. Do you think that humans' ability to develop came about because of this rare condition?
1: It's possible that the climatic conditions, such as the creation of arid areas in Africa and all... uh, could have had if it had happened at just the right time, but uh, it's also true that primates are extremely adaptable animals and humans have adapted to a very wide range of habitats and even during the periods of supercontinents, over 100 million years ago was the latest one, uh, you did have enormous deserts and dry areas because it was hard for moisture from the oceans to get to the center of a supercontinent make rain, so mm-hmm. uh, it, okay. the, the, this the, these conditions are not unique, but uh, it, it is that you, you do have the stresses created by the the, the, co- the cold weather and all, and humans have been, since, since like, I guess like over 100,000 years ago, have been living in Siberia, where it gets down right. to like 80 degrees below zero, which is amazing yes. that, that cavemen could do that
0: okay i get it okay. So uh yep i'm sorry i interrupted uh, you're, you're doing great i love this so we're my my, my we're, i was a biology major uh so one of my favorite classes was biology of vertebrates so we went all the way back in history so this is bringing back a lot of memories
1: i had a class the evolution of vertebrates with the a- Textbook by Colbert, a famous. But well, just, just, just
0: remember, you're you're seventy years old. You're yeah. you're seventy some odd. I'm fifty five. That twenty year difference, I mean, makes a difference in what we were taught. You were at the beginning yeah. phases of it, when, and I was already. They were developed.
1: So the basic, le- le- the basic lesson I'm trying to explain is the periods of high carbon dioxide level and periods of warm temperature are actually more normal for the Earth than than the current cold p- pattern that we're in, the long-term cold pattern that we're in, which is the Icyon. But right now, we're in the middle of an interglacial. We're actually near the end of it. So without, without global warming, within a thousand years or even less, we would go back to a 90,000-year-long ice age. And that, okay. that would be very bad because it would end up with all the trees, and plants being scraped off of North America and parts of Europe and ground into the ocean. If you want an environmental disaster, think of an ice age. (laughs) Okay. So, however, the global warming in terms of where we are right now is going to cause a problem. It's not threatening the Earth. It does not threaten life on the Earth because life has been through even periods of almost complete freezing and periods where the Uh, Carbon dioxide level is maybe 20 or 25 or even 50 times higher than it is now, where there were no no continental glaciers at all. And on top of that, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. It's a greenhouse gas, just like water vapor is a greenhouse gas. Your body is made out of carbon atoms from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere gathered by plants which have over millions of years have lowered the carbon dioxide level enough to allow ice eons to affect the whole globe. Typically, ice eon affects the area around the the polar cap, but we've got the, the carbon dioxide level down low enough now, so to some extent it can affect the whole globe and even lower the equatorial temperatures a little bit. Okay. Okay, now we're going to the second bullet point.
0: The alternative energy on ground and its problems.
1: Okay, so the people who believe in, in green energy always talk about wind and solar and I've been a su- supporter of gra- of alternate energy Gosh, for like 30 40 years I got interested in it back in the, in the 70s. But it's not a perfect solution. In fact, there are ma- mighty problems involved with it when you're using it as a major source of energy. Sunlight is a very diffuse source of energy and it takes a huge amount in terms of millions of tons of equipment, maybe hundreds of millions of tons that has to be fabricated and built and, and, and play and constructed together and store the energy. So the, think about it. Sunlight on the earth's surface is available on average, less than one third of the time in most areas due to the nighttime, clouds low sun angle and fog wind is intermittent yep. and hard to predict so you have to have a backup system currently backup systems consist of fossil fuel plants which you have to like typically a natural gas plant which you can turn on in a hurry if the wind dies away but if you know if if, if a weather system brews up the clouds may move in the sun may go out and then you have to get your your backup system on in a hurry so it's really expensive to maintain a system like that, and in some, in some areas you may only get three effective hours of full sun in the winter, which means you have effectively 21 hours of no sun at all in terms of your total amount of energy, which requires a very, very large uh, a backup system if, if you want to have a pure uh, alternate energy, which means no fossil fuel backup which would break the bank of every country on earth so it we definitely want uh, alternate energy is part of our mix it's very useful if you can use it in the summertime for like on your roof to run a, a, a air conditioner when the sun is shining but for it's a centralized energy source it has real problems also the storing energy is electricity is extravagantly expensive and I i mean extravagantly expensive even though they'll get the cost of the batteries down there's going to be millions and millions of tons of of stuff mined smelted fabricated and turned into all these batteries which are going to cover enormous areas with battery plants so the third major bullet point alternate energy in space a, a space.
0: I, I want to I add to the last one that you spoke about. I'm trying to find it and it was taking me a second to go through my... I kept this window open. There's a gentleman, I can't remember his name and maybe I'll find it while we're looking. He had... For 30, 40 years he had been studying solar power and he was a big advocate of it, huge advocate of solar power. The challenge that he... or And wind power. And he... At one point, he started to realize that solar power required football fields, large of uh, facilities, so they would have to destroy entire ecosystems just to be able to put them up. That solar power, the panels in 20 years or 30 years, will have to be re- sent to some third world country or be destroyed or whatever, and they have chemicals in them, and they're going to be challenging to be able to, uh, to work with. And when he did all the math of how endangered species are being killed by windmills, especially large species. He came to the conclusion that the French did. And he says he hates to admit it. He did a TED talk on this. He hates to admit it. But he came to the conclusion that these techs do more damage yeah. than to the ecosystem. And what he talked about was the, the, the challenge to manufacture, the challenge to move, the cost of the utilization of the product, can create millions of uh, respiratory diseases and challenges in the air because there's toxic gases given off. And then he said, and he showed a picture and he said, this is a nuclear facility and this is the room that you could store everything in for 30 years. And nothing is spout out into the atmosphere. And he said, I hate to say this, but I've come to the conclusion that this little tiny building As compared to football fields and getting and tortoises having to be pulled out or uh out of their their nests and and areas having to be stripped out he said it's better than everything we have on the table today so i'm adding that to your alternative energy i'm looking into it but it was a real neat ted talk
1: so what he's talking about there is what i refer to as energy density energy density refers to how much total mass physical equipment does it take to make the energy and how much land area does it take to collect and store the energy and my my, I came to the conclusion by simple arithmetic that the area of solar panels is much larger than the area of the city that it would supply and that you have to then put the the uh, solar farms hundreds of miles away from the city and have giant power lines carrying the electricity to the city because there's nowhere near the city that you could put this, the these solar farms there. They cover hundreds of square miles, not right. football field-sized areas. And people PNC, don't understand so. the scale of a, of a global, uh, a pure ground solar uh, 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 system. However, we'll point out that wind power is... I think, significantly more efficient in terms of materials and energy density uh, than, uh, than solar power. That's a, a little nod to wind power, especially wind power near uh, oceans or in wind areas which have wind most of the time. So that, that's a nod to them. Okay, so yeah. now remember, we don't have a crystal ball. So we're not trying to prognosticate. We're showing possible pathways. One one possible solution to the global to the uh, uh, global warming problem uh, lies, in, in fact, several pathways lie in space. But one of them involves the moon, and here's how it how it works. So one of the sol- one of the solutions to the physical space problem on the ground, and and also to the problem of nighttime. Is put your solar panels in space if you put them in geosynchronous orbit that's the 24-hour orbit so if you go around the earth 24 in 24 hours and you're above a city the city goes around in 24 hours your satellite stays right over that city that it's aimed down to a receiver on the ground picking up the ra- radio waves that transmit the energy down and you, it's not taking up any physical space on the earth and because it's not subject to wind, hail, rust, dust, nighttime, fog, snow, rain, corrosion, all the problems, take your TV set. You put your TV set outside for 30 years. Is it going to be working? Probably of course not. not. But you put a satellite in space uh, for 30 years. So we have satellites of it out there for like about 50 years. They still work because the uh, it, they, they don't they're not easily damaged off a meteorite hits it but the total number of meteorites are, are kind of low um, so these units are uh, these huge assemblages of solar panels in geosynchronous orbit or other locations are called solar power satellites and the concept itself is called space solar power and it's, it's simply getting your power from above the Earth in space instead of on the surface which it gets rid of all the problems and you get twenty four seven energy you get uh the the uh the earth goes I'm trying to think it 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 goes through the the shadow i think of the moon occasionally um and so there may have like one hour uh every few months i think it's twice a year uh where you you don't have any any energy. But all the rest of the time, 24 7, like 95% or more of the year, you're getting energy out of these systems. <coughs> so they, the, when, you're, when you're up there in, in orbit, you're, things don't have any weight. The gravity field is still there, but you're in orbit, so you're essentially weightless. They call it microgravity. So you can build very large structures. So these structures would be arrays of solar panels miles long. And they, the, the the panel array would face the sun all the time. They would face the sun at 90 degrees, so they'd be getting the full sun. And the sunlight in space is actually 30% stronger than on the ground. So on the ground and on, and at noon on Earth in a desert, you get about 1,000 watts per square meter. In space, you get almost 1,400 watts per square meter, about 13, 1,370 watts, something like that. Uh, so you can build these things and assemble them in space they do not have to track the Sun because they're aimed at the Sun all the time there's almost no moving parts the p- solar panels will last many decades and and uh, they would they, you know you can probably recycle the material more easily than on, on the ground the total amount of physical mass that you need to create a solar power satellite system is at least a hundred times less than on the ground, because you don't have to support the solar... Right, the, you don't, the need, the, you don't right.
0: need the infrastructure to hold it up.
1: Now, and you don't have any wind, so you don't have to stiffen it against wind damage, and you don't have hail. You don't have to worry about hail damaging the solar panels. So imagine what baseball size hail would do to, do to your solar panels. We, we've just had some hail here in, in the last week or two. Um, so now, the power is generated turning it turned initially into electricity it it, it's fed to a very large transmitter dish typically about one kilometer across again it doesn't weigh very much because it's in space which then aims the power down at the ground and at the ground installation uh uh, the ground receiver is like less than a tenth of the size of the equivalent ground solar power plant a, a few miles across uh, it has to be spread out, so you don't want your uh, radio energy coming down to concentrated form. Typically, it's about one quarter as strong as sunlight is, so it can't hurt anyone. Birds can sit and perch in it, and they won't they won't be harmed. In fact, birds have noted, notably been found sitting in radar beams because the radar makes them warmer. So that, that doesn't even hurt birds. So one of these large power satellites, say a 5 gigawatt power satellite, can supply all the power to a very large city uh, hmm. and we would want probably at least a hundred of these uh, f- uh, for the US that would make equivalent of 500 gigawatts of power they can come in different sizes you might have one gigawatt five gigawatt ten gigawatt sizes to, uh, of the satellites um, but it takes so much less material to build them that the 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 energy density of a space solar power system is much higher and especially because it does not use anywhere near as much land area as on the ground and and even more amazing because a because a, a solar power satellite receiver is like a whole bunch of little spidery tv antennas up above say about 15 or 20 feet above the ground on a network of of, of thin beams the sun, most of the sunlight hits the ground and so you can use the ground under this array for grazing or, or growing crops you're, you're not losing the land right yeah which is a huge benefit
0: so, so it's so let me get the 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 energy is being let's call it beamed down yes exactly just like and, beaming and it's,
1: it's me beam down scotty
0: Right, and it's beaming down an energy wave. Right, it's not beaming down a laser, well, or you, any.
1: You could do a laser beam, and that that may be used in in a low power lasers for emergency supplies, of power. Say like you have a earthquake disaster zone, you could set one of these things up with a laser beam system over a like a large area. Say several hundred feet across and get several megawatts of power out of it, but you probably can't. It's, you don't want to do that for really big lasers, and also a, a a laser powered by such a system theoretically could also be used as a weapon. So people are kind of a little skittish when it comes to transmitting the power via laser beam. Although they, you can make the beam so it can, it has to spread out over a wider area. Also clouds. Could, could theoretically could block, block the beam and make it bounce away from the ground just like sunlight. And so right. a, a cloud could theoretically stop the beam, but it's, it's much more difficult uh, to stop the, the radio beam. I mean, the radio waves go right through everything.
0: Right. So the, So the radio <laughs> wave is coming at a less intense energy delivery system. But still you're getting, because of the size and mass of the dish in the air in the in geosynchronous orbit and the size of the receiver on Earth, you're getting ample amounts of energy transferred for a city.
1: Yeah, but, and, and, and even more, you say it's one quarter as strong as sunlight is, which you think is very weak, but that energy is there 24-7, all during the nighttime, uh, around sunset. Uh, when the Sun is rising uh, and so forth you're getting and when it's cloudy that energy beam is still there so it's much more efficient Uh, and the materials used to build the receiving antenna are being used more efficiently because they're getting energy all the time uh, instead of only part of the time that's really important
0: now I don't know if you're going to go over this so I'm going to ask this now what are the, um, what are the people who believe that this tech won't work saying?
1: Well, we've been we've been uh, supplying our satellites with solar power, space solar power, for gosh, most of my lifetime. Since since they put the first satellites up, they started using uh, solar uh, cells on them because the they, they, batteries were, would run down in a day or right. two.
0: Right, it's solar power. So that my question is: Are there people out there who are saying this tech won't work? And what are they saying?
1: Well, it's mostly a political thing. That people, even when the whole idea first came out, there were people said people would be irradiated by these by the by these beams. And uh, they had visions of people being boiled in their own blood by, by super <laughs> p- powerful beams. But you can't, the, the, the problem is, of course, you can't focus a beam like that. It would take a transmitter probably 100 miles across to be able to even focus a beam uh, so that it would really do damage or at least 10 miles across. And if you're building something that big, people would know about it right away. And right it, it's not you're not
0: going to hide a 10, it, 10 mile across or what about uh, 20 kilometer across item and you're not going to be able to hide that
1: And in fact the beam itself uh, it cannot even focus unless you have a guide transmitter on the ground sending a little signal up to the satellite telling the beam come and aim at me and that's how it, that's how it works. It can't it, otherwise the beam just spreads out. Harmlessly in all directions, and again. So, is
0: it, so on a on a global scale, I can understand the U.S. You've got uh, interested parties who don't want to have uh, a very inexpensive, in the long term, inexpensive delivery of energy. On other other countries around the world, their biggest challenge is that they're not in space, and that's why.
1: Yeah, but we would build these facilities for any country. The whole idea, okay. it, it, it actually, it's, see, a lot of the problem of ground solar power is that 80%, 70% of the energy gets turned immediately into heat, and you're talking about global warming, so these hundreds, thousands of square miles of solar panels, maybe 100,000 miles or more of solar panels, would be dumping 70% of their energy directly into the Earth's atmosphere, creating an enormous amount of extra heat oh they,
0: they they've even started to do that uh areas on earth which were uh they were positive in terms of being able to absorb energy they were able to absorb sunlight they were able to convert uh to co2 and now because of deforestation and land reclamation that uh, we're uh, maybe that's the wrong word but wherever we're destroying habitats these are now producing additional heat for the earth so this wouldn't help to have an entire solar array adding more to the entire infrastructure
1: and when you're talking about each city would require several hundred square miles depending on the size mm-hmm. of the city of solar panels and probably a hundred square miles of batteries covering the land and the, those those actually do cover the land so efficiently uh, you have, to, uh, although they actually t- to avoid shading one collector by another on the ground, you have to space them uh, uh, so that their uh, a solar power sa- site on the ground is only 25 percent covered by collectors, and the rest of it is spacing to avoid one collector shading the other ones. So it it does kind of waste a lot of, a lot of ground. Okay. So.
0: So we're so I, I had stopped you on that point, and so we we got some good more information. So the alternative, this space energy opens the 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 alternative energy in space and its promise. Is there anything else to add to that? Well,
1: I don't like to denigrate anyone, but there are some people who who are ideological about you know like mankind is evil. It's a blight on the universe and we don't want mankind to get more energy, and, and they, they consider that providing more energy is bad, but actually, the people on Earth who have the highest population growth rate are the people who live in areas with the lowest per capita energy use. So, if you actually give them more energy in a clean way, of course, they're, within a generation or so, their population growth rate slows down. So actually, population growth and the occupation of wild land that was previously wild land by permanently by humans is actually de- de- destroys more wildlife than global warming does, because it's permanently occupied land by, by humans. And that's what population growth does, and especially in areas like Africa, where the many people are still basically living on their human muscle power alone. Those areas have the highest population growth rate right now. So that you know if we want to save uh, the wildlife in Africa, we better get the, those people some energy pretty quick.
0: I like the idea. So let's go on to this. Uh, the new space opens the door to space. Okay.
1: So as most people don't realize that almost every beautiful rocket that you see taking off from Cape Canaveral or Vandenberg or wherever, when it's done launching the satellite, it goes splat into the ocean and is smashed into lots of little pieces and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And it's it's completely smashed and useless. So mm-hmm. that's called an expendable rocket. All rockets were treated like a weapon, like an artillery shell. It's what we call the artillery shell mentality. You fire a rocket away and it does, it does its job. Now a rocket costs as much more as a whole airliner. So imagine if you had an airliner that that you had never flown had never flown before on a test flight and you get a hundred people on it you fly it to l a and, and all the people get off and then you then they turn that airliner into a scrap and then you get a brand new airliner to fly back to Washington or new York and then when when they get off the plane that airliner is turned into scrap. How long could could you afford to run such an airline and how much would each ticket cost? Mm, well a lot of money. If you had to say two hundred people, the ticket just to build the airliner would be half a million dollars per ticket. Real simple. So that explains why spaceflight is so expensive because we've been throwing our rockets away every time for 60 years. Okay? It's just you know it's mind-boggling we've tried and tried over the years to get the government to try to build reusable rockets and i was present back in september 11th 1993 when the first big rocket the dcx took off from white sands and landed again intact and over the following years it did it successfully uh nine or ten times And, and it was it worked just the same way that the Falcon 9 rockets do.
0: Yeah, and there's there's video online for anybody who is interested. You could look up the DCX, and you could see that what Elon Musk and what Bezos are doing today uh, was done in 1996. 90, 93,
1: actually. The first flight was sorry. August 93, and the second flight was, was publicly open uh, to reporters and stuff. It was in September 11th, uh, 1993. I was there, so it's been a long time. It's been like the the long twilight struggle, uh, those still small voices in the wilderness calling out to the big powers. Why don't you try? Why don't we build reusable rockets so we can afford to build power satellites, so we can afford to stop global warming? But they wouldn't listen because the big big boys uh, wanted to do it their way. So there is again there's another way to do it. So uh, Elon Musk came along and perhaps more than anyone else he had a specific reason to build reusable rockets. He wants to to start a uh, a, colon, a colony on Mars and be able to do lots of other things in space. So he he didn't he, did, he didn't even know how to build a rocket himself. He learned how to be, to be a rocket engineer, which is not easy and has built up this company of about 6,000 people. And they're now busy building, getting ready to test launch a rocket that is 30 feet wide down in South Texas. And it will take off and land just like the Falcon uh, 9 rockets, which are about 12 feet wide. So this, this rocket will be much heavier than the Saturn V rocket when, it, when, it, when the full-size rocket finally takes off. And they'll be able to launch uh, payloads very, very cheaply because they get the whole rocket back. The, the first stage will land, and the second stage will land. So you, it'll be even cheaper than, than a Falcon 9 because you get the entire rocket, just not the first stage back. Right. So that's a really big, a big deal. So the new space companies, especially uh, uh, SpaceX, are now building, flying, and recovering and landing reusable rockets. So if you want to build a power satellite, the first thing you do is you fabricate the parts, which are just thousands thousands of identical parts, so they can be mass-produced very easily. And you get them into uh, low Earth orbit, where, like, this, it's basically where the space station is, but you can put them into equatorial low Earth orbit, where it's, it's even cheaper to reach. It's right over the equator. So then you need to get them from low Earth orbit up to the 24 hour geosynchronous orbit. But that takes a lot of energy. In space, uh, 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 what they call delta V or change in velocity is so, sort of similar to the distance of a trip uh, uh, on the ocean or in the air because it takes energy to go a certain distance on, on, on the water, on land, in space to get to, a, to change your velocity a certain amount takes energy and so it takes a uh, four kilometers per second of delta V change in velocity to get up to geosynchronous orbit uh, that's a fair amount of energy so the other problem is that because of carelessness we've allowed a lot of space junk to accumulate in low earth orbit in the area immediately above it really, say up to about a thousand miles or so with all these communication satellites and used rocket stages and other thing, other things which are creating space debris, which if it hits you at five miles per second, is could could destroy a whole satellite or a whole spacecraft. So what we want to do is to get the stuff, the equipment, the parts up to geosynchronous orbit as quickly as we can through this shrapnel zone, which is not that massive that it will immediately destroy something but it's a it's a financial risk to bring it up through it if you do it slowly so you want to get bring it up fast so the next then the next thing is the moon itself moon to the rescue so every people might may know by now that the moon was created by a giant collision about four billion years ago actually longer ago than that uh, when a, when a small planet hit the earth and it turned both planets into mold, into liquid, uh, like lava, and a lot of it into, into rock vapor. And the moon was born out of this huge ring of rock vapor circling the earth. So almost all the water in the moon was driven off, because the moon was formed from a hot cloud of gas, and, but the earth and other planets typically were formed out of cold uh, clumps of gas and, 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 and dust. So the Earth and other planets were formed, and Mars were formed normally, accreted uh, into a larger planet. So the Moon was formed out of this hot gas, and so it has almost no water. But they have recently discovered at the poles of the Moon, especially in craters where the Sun never hits, where they say the Sun never shines, uh, Mm -hmm. the the solar wind and, uh, and comet impacts and other things have created deposits of water which when the water atoms or molecules hit these cold trap areas in these crater bottoms near the moon's poles they stick to the surface because it's it's down at about 40 degrees kelvin which is something like 400 degrees below zero fahrenheit it's really cold it's only 40 degrees above absolute zero so
0: so so the the way the way you're describing it just for clarity for individuals is that We've got craters on the moon. At the poles. And those craters, wherever, especially on the poles, are subject, uh, or the craters throughout the, the moon, are subject to the sun's intense heat. Which drives off cold, the water, right. Which scrapes off the water. But at these certain places, where they're hidden from view, if you want to call it that. And where the sun never ability, shines. Right. And they this way, in those specific places, there's water. Uh, on the moon. So we've been able to identify it, and I've gone over this in the past, but we've been able to identify that there's actually ice crystals and water on the moon.
1: And uh, there could be billions of tons of water up there. That's enough to support a very large amount of space traffic, because water, if you turn that water into hydrogen and oxygen, you have a completely safe uh, non-toxic rocket fuel. Uh, right. Oxygen and hydrogen. You liquefy it, And you can use it immediately as rocket fuel. So that's the source of rocket fuel. Now, um, you turn this. uh, What you have to purify the water first because there's other stuff besides water in in, in these deposits. Even there's even elemental mercury, which is a liquid, of course, and those mercury atoms get stuck there too. So you purify it, turn it into rocket fuel. So you turn the rocket fuel, uh, and you bring it up. To what we call a propellant depot which is called uh, in an area called L1 Lagrange point 1 it's about 50,000 miles away from the moon toward the earth which is sort of a gravitational null point and you can put
0: up so so, so let's just slow down for a minute for those who've never heard that term before Uh, you'll hear people in the space industry calling it uh, there's I believe five of them the L1, L2, L3, L4 this one is a space between the moon and earth where the gravitational pull between both of them is almost neutralized. So to some degree, if you thought about it, you'd be floating in the middle of both of them, where the gravity would pull just enough one way and just enough another so that you can sit in stasis. And,
1: of course, you have to have a a small amount of of reaction gas to, to sit. Imagine if you're sort of sitting on a frictionless hill. So you need to stay right in the center of that hill or you slide down one way or the other. Once you start sliding down, then it takes a lot more uh, propellant to get you back where you should be. So just tiny amounts of propellant can keep you right in the center of it. But it's a very, very, it's a, it's a good point. It's a, what we call it, it's high in the gravity well. I know people yep. may not have heard the term gravity.
0: So so let me just, uh, the gravity well uh, is the the depth of the gravity on the planet or sphere or whatever object. Right. So one of the challenges with space is that Earth has an extremely deep gravity well. Well, we're and the that's gravity one of the well, challenges.
1: the gravity was the same strength all the way to the top and it suddenly stopped. The gravity well is about 4,000 miles deep. It gives you an idea of how – imagine climbing a 4,000-mile high hill.
0: And that's one of the challenges on Earth. I was sitting with Bruce Pittman and Dan Rasky, and Dan came into the room. These are two people at NASA Ames. Dan came into the room right after Elon Musk's rocket had crashed at 2 minutes and 19 seconds. I think that was the number. And he says to me, C.C. David, David, space is hard. And I looked at him and I said, mm, I've got to bet you that space, is, Earth is hard. We have politics, we have gravity, we have manufacturing, we have human nature. We have all of these challenges. We're fairly good when we get to space. It's a challenging environment. But Earth is a challenging space to get out of. And there's a lot of things dragging us down, like you just described, the reason we're not in space, even though we had the, the development of the DCX, it didn't move forward. And that's human nature stopping the progress of space. That, so, was, that
1: was politics, it stopped that. We could have had Falcon 9s like uh, uh, over a decade or 15 years earlier if that had moved ahead. Right, so ahead. that's
0: the, the, this, this gravity well is a significant obstacle. For, for space development
1: so you want your fuel depot should be at the top of the gravity well but you it, it all, you can then use this fuel if you get it down to low earth orbit to use the liquid fuel to get your payloads up past the space debris zone quickly and up uh, uh, into the geosynchronous orbit where there's very little space debris and where the satellites move a lot slower so that the space debris right, so far is not up problem into so, your so what's synchronous the difference orbit.
0: in speed what's the difference in speed
1: well gosh you're probably going well in in Earth orbit you're going about 18 thousand miles an hour in geosynchronous your orbit you're probably going I don't know between five and ten thousand miles an hour I have to do a calculation wow that's uh, that's a
0: lot slower okay lot yeah slower. I just want to get a reference yeah, but to you remember you're pacing, because
1: you're pacing the earth as you go around so, so the satellite orbit is a lot bigger than the than the surface right. of the Earth, but it has to go around in the same circle at the same rotation rate that the Earth does.
0: Right. It's it's uh, you want to. I guess the way to think of it for anybody who's not heard of geosynchronous orbit is it's 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 mirroring the Earth. It's right there. Exactly. So if you live if you live in London. That satellite will follow London. Exactly. That that source would follow London, no matter where it is. So it would be an expansion of the Earth's uh, crust to this level where you it would be spinning at the same rate. And, Everything would would follow. And
1: if you have Direct TV, you have a uh, a commit comsat that your that your antenna is aimed at. It's always there in the same spot. The satellite knows to stay right in the same spot so that your your tiny antenna will point at it and you're always getting your T V signal. It works okay. exactly. It's a good the way, same way to describe
0: it. Good way to describe it. Thank you.
1: Okay, so if you it turns out that getting the lunar propellant down from the L one down to the low Earth orbit is much cheaper. It, it only takes uh, less than one kilometer per second of Delta V, or change in velocity, to get down to, to low-Earth orbit, because then you can then, what we do in, called an aero capture, using the Earth's atmosphere to slow down uh, in, into low-Earth orbit, uh, than it does to bring it up from the Earth, which requires about nine kilometers per second, which is vastly more energy than to come down. It 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 gets real technical, but if you double your uh, double
0: it's not it's not it's well. I think on the on an easier way because we could look. At, you could do the math, but what you're saying is, if we manufacture or do our work on Earth, then we have this huge challenge of getting it out to atmosphere because of this gravity well. Let's just use that as right. the, the the major challenge. But the moon doesn't is one gravity to the Earth. Therefore, getting it off the moon
1: doesn't take and it doesn't take given, much energy
0: doesn't take much energy take, and what yeah. i tell people is if you have a if you have a marble on earth and you try to throw it up it might go uh, 5 kilometer uh, 5 uh, meters or 7 meters up so it's 20 um 15 25 feet up but on the moon if you did the exact same thing and it was 20 it would now go 120 feet so it's a significantly easier to be able to uh work off of the moon
1: so you know you're like your typical space capsule that you put into orbit is say 10 tons right so it takes hundreds and hundreds of tons of rocket to launch that 10 ton capsule from the earth but on the moon for one ton of of cargo including propellant brought up to l1 it only takes about two tons of, of lunar propellant to launch one ton of lunar propellant to l1 And that includes going back and landing back into a lunar lunar base, a Mm round-trip. So it's very, very efficient. And then it takes even less than that to bring it down to the Earth, because you're coming down the gravity well instead of trying to climb up it. Uh, So that's very, very efficient. That means you can get your solar power satellite parts up to the 24-hour geosynchronous orbit quickly and safely without being damaged by space debris. And allows you to start building uh, all these huge power satellites so in order to do this we need to build what we what I refer to as a lunar polar mining base and that's the the heading number six yeah so the reason for building a base you want to be able to have a human outpost or base at one of the lunar poles Either pole will do because there's water in the in the cold trap crater areas at both poles, uh, and you need a, you need a bunch of equipment that has to be brought to the moon uh, for people to safely live there. You need a crew habitat that has to be buried under under the regolith a few meters of regolith to protect the crew from space irradiation. You need some spare crew vehicles so if some a vehicle has a, ha, breaks down. The crew can always take another vehicle and get back to Earth. You need an energy source. You need an energy source one to power the base itself, just like McMurdo base. Uh, it takes about two megawatts to run the base itself, but you'd also need multi megawatts to turn power to turn the water ice into rocket fuel. So you yes. go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, yes, you need, you need a lot of energy to be able to do that also. Right. But we're then again sitting on the moon. And
1: and you do have and, a certain amount of solar p- power available because in many of these areas, there are what they call areas where the, that are illuminated most of the time because the sun is right at the horizon most of the time. It's only in the deep craters that the sun can't reach. Which is it's a very interesting situation. You have areas which are lit as much as 70 to 80% of the time, and then areas nearby which, which the sun never touches. Uh, if it did, all the water would disappear very quickly. So then you need excavators to dig the, 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 and, li, and, and lift the, uh, the, the, the water, ice, and mixture of water, ice, and moon dust it out. You need a purification plant to separate the water you need an electrolysis plant to turn the purified water into hydrogen and oxygen and you need a liquefaction plant to liquefy those gases and you can actually store the liquefied gases down in the cold trap crater if you want where it may be so cold the gas might even freeze solid at least the oxygen would Uh, at 40 Kelvin believe me you'd have solid oxygen you have to be careful Uh, you need storage tanks and pumps for the fuel on the moon, storage tanks and pumps for the fuel that's been taken to L1, and taker rockets, reusable ones, of course, to move the fuel to L1 and then go back to the moon to get another load. You just just use like a regular truck. It goes back and forth. It carries a load one way and goes back empty. So,
0: so they, they, this is, I believe... Uh, what Dallas is working on, Dallas one Bino, of our friends. Yes, and, yes, and, Dallas Beanoff is working on this. This is one of his uh, his initiatives. And I remember I was sitting in a meeting, and he was calling it depots. And I said, "We have gas stations. We have gas depots. Let's use uh, propulsion depots. Let's use words that are common, so people on Earth can understand it." Right. So yes, I this is yes, I understand it. So think about this as a Uh, a refueling system with an ecosystem that delivers product from the moon to geosynchronous orbit or into uh, geosynchronous so that we're constantly being able to be able to keep and and supply the world with energy.
1: Exactly. So uh, if we can have such a system and with the inexpensive rockets – that we have now that, that would be able to operate inexpensively because you get the rocket back. The same rocket can make dozens of trips from the Earth to orbit, and the same tanker rocket can make dozens of trips from the Moon to L1, and another tanker rocket can make dozens of trips from L1 down to the Earth orbit and go back again because when it goes back to L1, it doesn't have any propellant in it except just the propellant it needs to get back to L1 so the, it's very efficient this would mean probably in about one generation we can build enough power satellites to completely replace the, the, the vast majority of of our liquid current liquid propellant and carbon-based fuels that we're using to generate electricity and therefore we can stop global warming and that that, that will get and it will also you know a lot of people talk about global warming as if the materials produced are are pollutants but like for example if you're burning uh, many of these plants the most of the product is water vapor and carbon dioxide because they have really good scrubbers now they get rid of almost all the actual toxic pollutants that that used to be produced so uh, we'll be able to uh, produce clean energy the energy obviously being produced on the moon Uh, uh, you're you're using the energy to make the rocket fuel you're not using fossil fuel to make it Uh, and if you use the energy from the power satellites to turn water into hydrogen and oxygen on the earth that rocket fuel could be made without using fossil fuels too currently a lot of hydrogen is uh, produced using fossil fuel but we can end that by by using solar energy from space and produce all our rocket fuel uh, from electricity from electrolysis. So
0: let me add one ask one question that has to do with the moon. Are there resources on the moon for the building and development of the satellites?
1: Well, no. It will it will take us a while to build up a wider variety of industries on the lunar surface. Remember the moon is a what I call a refractory world because it lost the vast bulk of its light elements, elements which are easily evaporated. There's very little uh, native carbon and and things like that, uh, uh, and gases of any kind on the moon. But there are things like it has aluminum, it has iron, it has enormous amounts of silica and oxygen in its rocks. And there are other elements.
0: Platinum. Platinum's is in high. so well, there's enough uh, iron ore.
1: Yeah, they call, it, they call those elements siderophile, which means iron-loving, uh, like a siderite. It's like a meteorite. So you've got yep. iron, nickel, uh, and then you've got platinum, osmium, iridium, palladium, and several other of these iron-loving uh, minerals, which are quite valuable that are mixed in with nickel, iron, meteorites, and as much as 1% of the lunar dust is this nickel-iron powder. So you, you—if if that is sufficiently dense to make an ore, remember an ore is defined by can you make money if you retrieve it and purify it? If it's not dense enough, it's not an ore, it's a rock. It's what, what we call a leave A leave means leave it right there. <laughs> So, that okay. I mean, that, having this, what we call a cislunar transportation system, cislunar is simply the space between the Earth and the Moon's orbit, which includes all of the... Uh, the L points, L L one
0: That's where we have the that's where we have the mirth that we spoke right. about the moon and, and earth.
1: The L five Society itself was used the name L five as, as the name of the society because it was proposed to build a space colony there. You can actually build the space colonies in many locations and in the fu- further in the future we may find huge numbers of space colonies built in the asteroid belt because there's a very large supply of nickel-iron asteroids in the asteroid belt itself, which are closer, and you may even want to build a, a, a settlement in the same orbit as an asteroid where you get you could get your, your uh, raw materials almost for free because when you go along the orbit of something, it takes almost no propellant to go along an orbit. It's only when you leave the orbit that it takes propellant. So there's a, it opens a very very wide array
0: of yeah it's, it, it's I got to tell you John this is this is absolutely what I was looking for this was brilliant you walked me through this in a way that I understood it I had I had heard all sorts of stories from different people pieces uh, as uh, I think uh, I've shared with you the. One of the first events that I had gone to or spoke at was the National Space Society, and I've learned a lot over the years, but this was the first time that I felt the, I felt the logic coming together, and I really appreciate, I truly appreciate your historical reference to uh, deep time and how that's impactful in uh, understanding some of the challenges that we're going through today so
1: remember this is not a crystal ball this is not locked in politics could derail it if we get fusion power the fusion power would be a fantastic substitute and we also need fusion power for terraforming and interstellar travel so i very strongly support fusion power research uh, along with all the other, uh, all the along with the other re- types of research in space and in space science too.
0: Well, i i have I'd have a lot more questions for you, but I'm going to end it here. Uh, thank you so much. You did an amazing job of walking this me through the understanding of this. So I absolutely appreciate the information and and the uh, the way you wove the story. It was it was brilliant. Thank you. So with that said, uh, again, very quickly, uh, Project Moon Hut Foundation uh, has been working for over five years. We have people all around the world who have been helping us from Israel and Dor to people in Germany, uh, Moscow, uh, United States, Hong Kong, South Africa. We've had people helping us all over the world, and our directive is to create sustainable life on the moon. And it's not self-sustaining life, so here we're supporting it, just as if we talked about these rockets, through the accelerated development of an Earth-based, Earth and space-based ecosystem. So our initiative is to help drive this tech, these types of techs that end up doing one thing: they change how we live on Earth for all species. As far as we know, in the Earth today, the the, the Earth today is the one place on Earth that's really our home, and the more I can learn. The more we can learn, the better we're able we're to make better decisions moving forward as to where we should spend our energy as the world shifts and changes. So once again, thank you for being on the show. There, there's a few things. Projectmoonhunt.org. You can go to the website, sign up for a space-related database. You can go to Facebook forward slash Project Moon Hut. Uh, You can go to Twitter and you can tweet to us at at Project Moon Hut. And you can email me at david at projectmoonhut.org. So for everybody, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.